Father, that we might not be led down unrighteous paths. Lord, that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would protect us from even heresy. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your word is living and powerful, that it convicts us and changes us, directs us. Pray that we would be people of the book. That as we know and understand, it, was, it would not be because of emotion or feeling, but it would be because we know that that's what your word says. Uh, Lord, as we've been studying Galatians, we realize this was a group of people, a group of churches, really, that were flirting with heresy, uh, flirting with ungodliness. And Lord, we ask that we would be able to learn from their lives, their story, so that we would be able to be protected ourselves. Lord, again, we thank you that you are powerful, that you've given us your spirit that guides us into truth, that you've given us your word that is without error. And again, we ask that our minds would be focused now, that you would clear away anything that has preoccupied our thinking up to this point in the service, if it has, and that we might be able to gain and learn and understand all the things that you would have for us from your word. In Christ's name, amen. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be there in just a moment. Would you say would it's safe to say that parents love their children? I guess one of the marks of our church is that there's a lot of families, a lot of young families, a lot of you are parents. We seek to give to our kids and care for our children and even sacrifice for our children. In fact, I find myself many times looking at my kids, just looking at them. And, 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 and noticing, they're probably thinking, well, why is dad looking at me? <laughs> I know where she got her nose. I know where, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, characteristics. Or then you start seeing them in action. And I can see where he gets that type of thinking or that type of wording or that type of gesture. My wife tells me quite often, boy, you're starting to become more and more like your dad talking to me. Yeah, we have a great love for our children. What would happen, though, or rather, how would you approach your child if you knew they were in error? Maybe an error in the way they're thinking about finances, maybe an error in relationship. The greatest of errors would be how they look at God. How would you approach them? I trust it would be gentle, humble, careful. How do you approach? I hope that you, you wouldn't go in guns blazing. You know, Paul talked about how he approached the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.11, he said, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. And then he says this, as a father does his own children. So he says, I exhorted you. I came alongside of you. That's what that word exhorted. It's paracleo. And I comforted you. I consoled you. And also I charged you. That word charge means I bore witness. In other words, I modeled it in front of you. So Paul says, you know, I was just like a father to you Thessalonians. You know, I talked to you. I came alongside you. I even modeled it for you. Because I was like a father to his children. That's what fathers do. And he ends that verse by saying that you would walk worthy of God. See, how would you approach a wayward child, especially a theologically wayward child? You go and you console and you exhort and you, you, you bear witness and you model it and please change your ways, please change your thinking. I know sometimes children say things just to push your buttons. But... As a father, we should gently and carefully confront and exhort. But what if that child was in grave danger? They've moved down the path a little farther than just 
toying with error? What if that error would ultimately kill them, physically or spiritually? And what if you were not sure how far they had progressed and how bad it really was? Or as we've been saying in this series, what if they were ready to drink uh, spiritual antifreeze? And you know, when it was all said and done, it was going to kill them spiritually. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Again, Paul looked at himself as their spiritual father in the Galatians. Remember this first missionary journey? He went up past Antioch, 300 some miles away, into the area of southern Galatia. He had gone in his first missionary journey to a number of churches. Those churches together were considered the Galatian churches. And then he returned. And we're going to look at some of his journey today, actually. But then he caught word. By the way, he presented to them justification by faith alone. That through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice, that as a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, they would be declared righteous. He had presented to them clear truth and they had received the clear truth. But then he catches wind that they are beginning to turn from the truth into error. Error that said Christ plus works. Christ plus the Old Testament law, that you had to be circumcised, that if you were a Gentile, you had to become like a Jew. And that was like drinking spiritual antifreeze. It was very, very disheartening to Brother Paul, I'm sure. And he writes the, the book to, uh, of Galatians to the group of churches saying, listen, you, wait a second, you, you're going down the wrong path. You're heading into an area of disaster. Have you ever done that for your child? Stop! It's going to kill you, not just physically, spiritually. And that's why in Galatians 1, actually, let's go to 1, verse 1, he says, I marvel that you are turning so soon away from him who called you. In other words, I just presented to you the gospel of grace. I just presented to you justification by faith alone. There was only (coughs) the fact of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that if you put your faith in him, God will give you eternal life based on what Christ did, not what you do. Don't you understand that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God? And yet they were ready to move in a different direction because the false teachers had crept into the churches. Because that's how false teachers do. They don't come, hey, listen, I'm a false teacher. I'm I'm leading you to hell. Anybody want to follow? And he says, I can't believe you're so turning away. The word is deserting. You're deserting Christ. You're you're no longer loyal to him. You're moving to, verse 6, a different gospel, a different being, different, totally different. Now a little bit of difference. The difference between life and death, between eternal hell and eternal salvation. To another, and that's why he says, verse 8, even if an angel from heaven preach another gospel, then what I preach to you, let him be damned. Let him be damned. In fact, he says it again, verse 9. As we have said before, so, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you've received, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. I mean, do you see the intensity of the Apostle Paul? <coughs> I mean, if, if one of my children are going down the wrong path and it could damage them physically and especially spiritually, are you going to get intense about it? Are you going to try to rescue them? And Paul, with the heart of a father, a spiritual father over these churches, says yes. And he writes the the letter to encourage them and to exhort them. And it even goes beyond that. He's going to be saying some very... It's almost like this. When he he gets to this letter, it's it's almost like he's... I, I can't believe it. You know, you get... Have you ever talked to your kid where it's almost like you... I just can't believe what you're doing. What are you thinking? That's his intensity here. I mean, you have to see that that's his intensity. Well, from verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, through the end of chapter 2, what he does is, this is, I'm just giving you a review, in the letter, the Galatian letter, (coughs) he gives a personal or a biographical sketch of his own life. Because what he had to prove to them is this, that my message is from God and I have been called by God to present the message. He had to defend his apostleship. He had to defend his message. Because let's face it, why would the Galatians listen to him if he's another false teacher? He had to defend who he was so that they would listen to the message. So that's really what chapter 1 and 2 is about. And in 
And at the very end of chapter 2, he actually goes from his life, verse 15, to he's talking about the actual gospel. In fact, verse 16 is a very, very clear presentation of justification by faith alone, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It's justification by faith alone. That's how a person receives the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so he wraps up his personal biography by looking at himself. And that's why verse 18 says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I, through the law, died. I might live to God. And he does I, 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 all the way to verse 21. I do not set aside the grace. I, I, I. Why? Because he's, it's a personal testimony. But now with chapter 3, he's going from his personal biographical testimony to the doctrinal part of the entire book. He's going to be defending justification by faith from about eight different directions. Okay, so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at justification by faith and looking at all the different arguments that people have out there saying, well, it can't be just justification by faith alone. And Paul's, through chapters 3 and 4, going to be defending all the different arguments out there of why justification by faith is wrong. And he's going to say, no, no, that's what the truth is. In this first section, he's going to be interrogating the Galatian Christians. Okay, verses 1 to 5 is an interrogation. Now you might say, well, why do you say interrogation and not questioning? Because this man is intense. You know, questioning, eh, you know, what do you think? You know, how'd you get the spirit? How do you can progress? No, no, he's focused. Because their lives are on the line. Their eternal life is on the line. So I, I've, I've, in your outline, you'll see Paul's interrogation of the Galatians. Well, I want you to just notice three different things. As we look at verses 1 to 5, in fact, let me read verses 1 to 5, and we'll point out a couple, three things. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, exclamation point. You fools, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you see his intensity? <coughs> Did you notice all the question marks? Question mark, question mark. Every verse is a question mark. Verse, question, question, question. I'm going to ask you five questions, Galatians. I want you to answer them for me, Galatians, Galatian people. Did you also notice that he went from the I of verse 21, 221, to you? I think he used you nine different times in those five verses. You. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before who eyes it? Among you as crucified. You, 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 you. I mean, he's, he is now intense. He's asking them questions. In other words, before he gets into the entire doctrinal part of chapters 3 and 4, he's going to be asking them some questions. By the way, that's what a good counselor does. A good counselor doesn't just give you good answers. It asks, he asks good questions first, trying to find out. Now with Paul, now catch this, Paul knew the answers to every one of these questions. Because if you're a Christian, well, other than the first one, he, he bewitched you. But the other, uh, verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, those are, those are answered by every, uh, by every Christian. Every Christian experiences those four questions. The question of, how, do you have the Holy Spirit? How are you progressing in the Christian faith? Are you able to suffer in the power that works in you? That, that's how it breaks down, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So he's asking, as it were, a rhetorical question. He knows what the answer is going to be already. But he's going to be like reminding them, listen, you, let's kind of get a foundation of where you're at. Because really, other than, a, other than chapter 1, what we just looked at, and telling them that they turned away 
and that they're going after another gospel, he hasn't really dealt with the Galatians up to this point. See, he's been dealing with himself, trying to establish the foundation that he was a true apostle with a true message. But he now turns and he says, now I want to ask you some questions. All right, I've been telling you about myself, now I want to know about you. In fact, not only that, but he he actually brings in the Trinity here. Uh, Verse 1, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, the Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then the, the, the one he's referring to in verse 5, he who supplies is the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity here. And what he's pointing at is this, is that through salvation, the Trinity is involved. If you're saved, it's because the Trinity got involved in your life. You're not saved because you got smart. You're saved because the Trinity is involved in your life. And you remain saved because the Trinity is involved in your life. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, do you understand that that's under attack even today? Beware. There's a heresy, and I've heard it. And Actually, I've heard it around here. I've heard it in Alfred. I've heard different ones saying it's called Jesus only. It's a form of an old heresy called modalism. Modalism. It's where God is sometimes... This is the heresy, by the way. This is not the truth. This is the heresy. But this is how it comes... This is how it's played out. Where God is sometimes in the mode... That's why they call it modalism. Mode. The mode of the Father. Or the mode of the Son. Or the mode of the Spirit. But He's never all three at one time. Again, it denies the distinct personhood of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be very careful because sometimes people say, well, it's not that big of a difference if you just believe that there's one versus three persons of the Trinity. No, no, that's heresy. That's damnable. There's the Father who basically planned planned salvation. Jesus Christ, the second person of the, the Trinity, came and sacrificed himself because of the will of the Father. And what did Jesus say? If I go, the Father is going to send whom? The Holy Spirit. If I don't go, the Spirit doesn't come. (coughs) Actually, John 14 and 15 um, are huge as as seeing who the Holy Spirit is. I I point that out just as an aside, but be careful. There's a trinity that's involved in your salvation. Well, let's get to the interrogation. And again, there's surprise and indignation when he says, verse 1, O foolish Galatians. Now, again, when he says foolish, he's not saying that they're unintelligent or stupid. You know, don't read that. Oh, stupid Galatians. You know, I know. It's like, no, he's not saying that. But they were acting without reason. They were irrational at this point. You're going to see why they're irrational. They're foolish because they were questioning, now catch this, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for him. That's why he says foolish. Listen, I clearly presented Jesus Christ and him sacrificed and him crucified for you. That the sacrifice was completed on the cross. <coughs> and now you're toying with Christ plus works? How foolish! The, the word foolish is not uh, moros. Many times in Scripture you see fool, and it's the Greek word moros, which we get the word moron. It's not that word. It's a different word. It means you're not, um, you're mentally lazy. That's what he's getting at. All right? Not mentally deficient, just mentally lazy. You're becoming lazy in the way you're thinking. You're careless. You could say it this way you're idiotic. In other words, you have the facts there and you have the ability to think through the facts. You understand who Christ is and you receive Christ. But you're getting mentally lazy. That's what he's getting at with foolish. Not stupid, just you're... Come on, start thinking here. Why would Jesus Christ, the the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, come to this earth and die if you could get salvation by works? That's what he ended ended with verse 21. You know, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. I mean, come on, why would Christ come if works could do it? You're being idiotic. In fact, J. John Phillips, in his paraphrase, this is how he translates verse 1. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. You ever receive a letter like that? <coughs> oh, you dear idiots of Alfred Allman Bible Church. 
Oh, yeah, that's how you win friends and influence people. Yeah, and I want to come and speak to you. No. In fact, verse 3, he, uh, Phillips translates it this way. Surely you can't be so idiotic. And let's not be idiotic. Let's start using our mental facility, mental abilities. Again, the, the Galatians were being urged by the false teachers to do, not only receive Christ, but receive the law, live by the Mosaic law, become circumcised. Basically, add. That's the point. Take what Christ did, plus. If anybody comes to you and preaches another Christ, other than Christ alone, that's Christ plus. And you see it in our world all over the place. Oh yeah, Christ is great, but plus. As one man said, to supplement the work of Christ is to supplant the work of Christ. Or to, in other words, to add to the work of Christ is to overturn the work of Christ. This is huge. I know the word alone probably means many, maybe even to you, or even up to this point, you say, oh, you mean Jesus Christ alone? Well, you know, what's the big deal? Because to add anything to the work of Christ destroys it. That's why basically Paul writes an entire epistle just about justification by faith alone. Galatians is all about it from start to finish. It's like taking a baseball. I mean, can you imagine finding a baseball at a yard sale? And faintly, you look on the, you know, where the, on the, the skin of it, and you see the word Babe Ruth. And you buy the thing for a buck and a half because the person was so faint you didn't really see it. And so when you got home, you took out your big pen and you wrote over top of that signature, which was the true thing, with Babe Ruth, thinking that you were adding to the value. Well, what did you just do? You just destroyed the value. Do you see how when the work of Christ, you want to add to the work of Christ? You just destroyed the work of Christ. You can't say Christ plus. It's Christ alone. He says, so, so now he's, he, gets, he goes beyond our oh, foolish Galatians. Now he's going to start asking the questions. Gonna, like, a, like a good pastoral counselor. Okay, you're in, man, you're going down the wrong path. You're going down damnation road here. Let's, let's start asking you, but, but I believe you're saved. I mean, let's think this through. By the way, if you're saved, you're saved. But he's got to start asking himself. He's got to be starting to question. I wonder if they really do believe the truth. So he asked them five questions. And I, I gave you the outline pretty quick. It's, well, let's look at the first one. He's going to ask them about their, that being the Galatians, seducers. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified? Who, who's bewitched you? By the way, they were the Judaizers, the legalists, the ones that said you needed Jesus Christ plus the law. But, but, he, but basically he's saying, listen, the word bewitched means like, who's put you under a spell? That word bewitched is used of like occult, like hypnotism, like some weird occult influence. Who bewitched you? And by the way, you don't say that word with like, you know, who bewitched you, man? I mean, there's intensity. I mean, who hypnotized you? Who put you under the spell like of an evil eye? The evil eye. So this is a rebuke. The, the first question is a, is a negative, is a rebuke. By the way, how is it that people are bewitched? How is it that people end up in cults? You know, I really believe this. It's kind of going back to that word foolish. Because they're not using their mental capacity. Many times people get involved in cults. I want you to know this. It's because of feeling and emotion. They made me feel loved. They made me feel accepted. They drew me in. I mean, people that have come out of cults will say, it wasn't because of the doctrine, it was because of who they were and relationships. And I stopped thinking, I just started feeling, and I went down the... And before long, I was involved, and I didn't even realize it. And I was accepting of the wrong doctrine because they made me feel. And I'm sure some of that had to play out. 
How do you get put under a spell? By the way, he's not saying an actual spell, but he's using the word of like an occult. You're, you're like spellbound. What do you, it's like, the, you know, you're not thinking anymore. I mean, think about a snake. How does he catch a bird? You know how uh, many times they'll do it? I mean, let's face it, a, a bird can just fly away. A snake can't fly. I haven't seen one. But if the serpent can catch the bird's eye, it can hold it spellbound till he can get to its prey. Hypnotized. J. Uh, Phillips relates a similar event. He writes, quote, I saw a young boa constrictor do that once to a mouse. The mouse stood, simply stood, gazing in fascinated horror at the slowly approaching serpent. It made no attempt to get away. It simply stood, shaking its every limb and awaiting its doom. But I think sometimes that's how Christians are. They get memorized. They get hypnotized. Who's bewitched you? By the way, are you bewitched? Have you gone down the path of falsehood? Almost like staring, not thinking, just feeling, trying to feel your way through this thing called Christianity. See, the Galatians had been hypnotized by the clever arguments of the Judaizers. By the way, false teachers will be very clever. False teachers will be very convincing. The problem is it's not scriptural. They may use the Bible, but it's not scriptural. It's not what the Bible actually says. And false teachers can confuse your mind, and they have confused their minds. And so these Galatian Christians are apparently, as it were, groping in spiritual fog. You know, Ephesians 4.14, if you just write that, don't turn there, but Ephesians 4.14 says that we need to have teachers, we need to have preachers, we need to have people who are presenting the Word. And part of the reason is this, verse 14, so that we're not like children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, and by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He says every wind of doctrine, just, you know, some... Some people are just like, whatever the next, the next book that comes out, they're all for. If it happens to be the prayer of Jabez, I'm going down that path. Come on, let's think about this for a little bit. And I know some of us, some of us, and I'm going to include myself, we're kind of like swept away at that. Wait a second here. Let's think. Let's think about some of these things. I mean, if you really want to pray a prayer, doesn't it make sense that you pray the disciples' prayer that the Lord himself taught? Doesn't that make sense? Matthew 6. But it's easy to be swept away it's by the trickery of men. See, again, people don't go around saying, I'm a false prophet, I'm on my way to hell. they very slick, very careful, cunning. And look what he says. How can you be bewitched before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you? I mean, you sat through my messages, Paul said. You heard the truth, you received the truth. That's Christ publicly proclaimed. That word clearly portrayed, or whatever version you might have, but clearly portrayed, is the word prographo. It means to write a public advertisement, okay? A public reading. And that's what they used to do. In fact, back then, if, if like when you were executed, they would put it above your head. That was the public. That was like a placard. This is what this man did. But you see it in you know, store windows, you know, placards, something that's public, that's been a- an advertisement. It's clear. In fact, they used to have placards where, you know, sandwich men, is that what they call sandwich boards? You know, and the guy would walk around with the you know, board on the front, board on the back with two straps, and they were advertising. That's, that's what the concept here. Paul says, listen, it, he was, I was clear to you about who Christ was. It was clearly proclaimed, it was clearly advertised that, of, of the crucifixion among you as crucified. Jesus Christ clear, clearly portrayed among you as crucified. I mean, there should have been no doubt in your mind as to why Jesus Christ came to this earth. And that was to save men. In fact, that word crucified is in the perfect tense. Okay? The word, and that's huge. That is huge. It's not in the past. It's not in the present. It's in the perfect tense. Which means this. Something happened in the past, but has continued results. That's, he uses the same exact uh, form of the verb 
in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, perfect tense. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 2 of Corinthians. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Perfect tense. So we have perfect tense here. We have perfect tense. What does he mean by perfect? He's saying, listen, we're not preaching that Jesus Christ is crucified and He's still there. It means that something happened in the past with continuing results, but it also means that his crucifixion led to his burial, led to his resurrection, led to his ascension. Okay? It's huge. <laughs> he's not using past tense only. He's saying, listen, what happened? He's not, a, and that's why, you, you know, we sh- Jesus is not on the cross. Why do people wear crucifix? It's not about Christ on the cross. He was only there for a few hours. Not as crucified, but having been crucified. That was just a point in time. But that crucifixion led to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's all that. See, when he says Christ crucified, that's, that's why, you, you know, when he says in uh, Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What you mean? You just talked about his crucifixion? Cru- no, no, it's in the perfect tense. It means everything that happened from crucifixion to the present. Jesus is not a dead Savior. He's a living Lord. It's like Revelation 118. I don't think it's in your notes, but write this down. Revelation 118. Jesus Christ talking to the Apostle John. This is what he said. I am he who lives and was dead and forevermore alive. Past, present, future. Yes, I, I'm living. I was dead, but I'm forever now alive. Amen. He's, a, he's the risen Lord. He is the risen Lord. But for the Galatian... Christians, I'm going to call them Christians carefully here. Something about the law was very fascinating. It was like the mouse looking at the snake. They were fascinated by the fact, almost bewitched and seduced, that somehow, yeah, maybe they were Gentiles, they got converted, but maybe I need the law. Maybe there's something more I have to add to this thing called saving grace. You may ask, well, again, how is it that people get into false doctrine well, I think there's a couple answers to that I think again first of all it's ignorance I don't think we as Christians really seek to understand what the Bible says that's ignorance that's human ignorance but the other side of it is the doctrines of demons it's the fact that the spirit world false spirits false you know well John says this test the spirits so it's a, there's a spiritual a, a, aspect to this why is it that there's so much error in the world well part of it is human ignorance but the other part is the spirit world satan wants people to feel very comfortable with works all he has to get them to do is to believe in works to the last moment of their existence here on this earth right i mean let's face it after you breathe your last breath then your eternity is set. And if you have not put your full faith and trust in Christ alone, you're going to end up in hell. It's very subtle. Very, very subtle. And these false teachers were trying to, trying to trick, as it were, trying to seduce, trying to uh, bewitch the, this group of Christians into believing the wrong thing. Again, be careful. It's very subtle. It, in fact, one guy was saying this. There's something very subtle about appealing to the Bible itself in support of error. A person would take a, a passage of Scripture right out, or a, a verse out of context and present it as truth and say, well, this is what God said. Example. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. I find it interesting. Again, we're in a Sabbath day area. And by the way, I pray with the pastor down there, but I find it interesting because I asked him recently, what do you think of us? And I won't tell you the whole thing, but the point is this. No, it was, it was fine. It wasn't like derogatory or anything. But the reality is this. I find it so interesting that it says in Corinthians that the new early Christians were supposed to give on the first day of the week. All the other Ten Commandments are repeated in Scripture, and yet there's this one that's repeated, not repeated. Sabbath is not repeated. By the way, the church is not Israel. If the church was Israel, then I would be a Sabbath day keeper. 
Or like where it says, forbid not to speak with tongues, 1 Corinthians 14. Interesting. But the context is, is, is not saying that we all have to speak in tongues. And let's just figure out what tongues is anyways. According to Acts 2, it's a known language. If you do something other than a known language, you're not even speaking biblical tongues. I know that. I hope that doesn't... Well, if it offends you, it's, you know, so be it. It's the scriptures. You've got to be careful because we find it interesting. I mean, I, I find it, people find it so appealing. Well, if, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, the Bible says Jews went out and hanged himself. You're not going to do that. Ecclesiastes says the dead know nothing. In other words, when you're dead, you're dead. There's no eternal... Well, Ecclesiastes is, is spoken from man's perspective. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. So from a man's perspective, the dead are dead. But we know from an eternal perspective, from a biblical perspective, what? That there is life after death. That you either end up in eternal hell or eternal heaven. You either have life or death. Be very careful. Error remains error no matter who teaches it and no matter how much Bible is quoted. Many times people get hung up because they say, well, the Bible's quoted. The occult especially cults, will quote the Bible. Be very, very careful. For the Galatians, it was very clear that Christ was sacrificed and His sacrifice was sufficient, not needing the works of the law, and they needed to look at that and not somehow go back to the law. Anyway, said enough of that. That was their seducers. How about the last four questions? I'm going to have to hit these quick, I guess. How about number two, their salvation. Their salvation. This only I want to learn from you. Now again, this is Pastor Counselor Paul speaking. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you, how did you actually come to receive the Spirit? And this is the first positive question. He knows that if there are Christians, they've received the Spirit. It is, by the way, the Holy Spirit is not a second blessing. It is very clear that if you don't have the Spirit of God, Romans 8, 9 says, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of His, right? If, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living within you. So why does he bring up the Spirit? Because it's the Spirit that brings life, okay? There's this law called biogenesis. How many of you understand? You know what biogenesis is? It states that, no, that there can be no life without an antecedent or a forerunner life. In other words, chickens lay eggs and they produce turtles. No, chickens lay eggs and produce chickens. Well, chicks. Got to get some more chickens, by the way. I love fresh eggs. Life produces life. May also, Louis Pasteur demonstrated this truth years ago, many, many Many, 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 many years ago. He, this is what he did. He held up a thoroughly... <coughs> excuse me. He held up a thoroughly sterilized and carefully sealed flask before his audience. He knew there was no germs, no life inside this flask. It was sealed. And this is what he said, quote, It is devoid of life. I can keep it for a hundred years and it is still devoid of life. I can beg and plead with it to produce a life form, even the humblest of life forms, but it remains unmoved by my pleas. Only life can beget life, unquote. If there's no life, life begets life. This is the point. And the law cannot produce life. Can't do it. Jesus, Jesus said in John 3, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he said in verse 8, that you need to be born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit that gives life. Let, let, me, let me follow this up. Remember in John, again, uh, 14, 6, I am the... This is Jesus speaking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life. That's the, that's the word. Life. I'm life. There's no life outside of me. Then he's telling his disciples this. I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, another helper, another the same type. If I go, he'll come. The Father will send him. 
And when I, come, when I go and He comes, He's life. In other words, it's the Spirit that brings life. It's the Spirit that regenerates a person. It's the Spirit that brings a person from death to life. That's why Paul says, listen, do you have the Spirit? And how did you get the Spirit? Was it by faith in Jesus Christ? Was it Him that sent Him? Or was it because of the works of law? Life begets life. The law couldn't do it. They had life through the Spirit by faith in the living God. Not the works of the law. The law was dead. Well, let's look at the third question. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being made, now being made perfect by the flesh? He moves from their salvation to their sanctification. He's saying, well, listen, well, let me ask you this. All right, I know you have the Spirit, because every Christian has the Spirit. It's not a second blessing. Every Christian has the Spirit. Maybe not filled by the Spirit, but they do have the Spirit. But the question now is, are you being made perfect? You, you got the Spirit, but are you now being made perfected by the flesh? Is that how you're sanctified? How are you going to be completed? I think there, if there was an error among Christians today, that's the error. I think many times, I've fallen into this. Somehow I think, well, you know what? I'm saved by Christ, but I've got to keep all these laws to really please God and be completed. And we're going to investigate this a lot more in chapter 5. It's like John Phillips used another illustration. He said, of the butterfly having, butterfly having emerged from its chrysalis, transformed, metamorphosed to, to a new life, and equipped with gorgeous gossamer wings. That would not have been my wording, but that was his. I mean, does he continue as a caterpillar? Here's his beautiful... Does it say to itself, well, I have been transformed. I must do my best to be a butterfly. I will crawl up this stem and gnaw on these leaves. Is that what this caterpillar to butterfly says? I must crawl up this stem and gnaw on these leaves? Of course not. It spreads its wings. It catches the rising air currents. It soars from the field to field. Seeking the nectar of flowers. It has new life. It's been transformed. We've been transformed. And having been born again of the Spirit, are we going to now depend on the law to tra- uh, sanctify us? Apparently that's what the Galatians were doing. They thought somehow that the law could complete their salvation. Uh, keep your hand there. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. He very clearly lays this out. And I know I'm almost out of time. Verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That verse, verse 3, is all about justification. Because we cannot be declared righteous on our own, God sent His Son. Look at verse 4 though. This is sanctification. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the law. Right? No. That's what we do sometimes, though. Got saved by grace. Going to keep walking by the law. That's what's going to sanctify me. No. It's by the Spirit. That's sanctification. And again, there might be some questions, but we'll answer them in the next few weeks. If we're going to be sanctified, it's not just salvation. Grace saves us, grace sanctifies us. So that's what he, it's grace from start to finish. How about the fourth question, verse 4? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, these Christians apparently had suffered. You can write this down, Acts 14.21. See, when you can read in Acts 13 and 14, if you just sometime read there, that's his first missionary journey, and Paul was actually stoned. What was it, Derby, I think it was? But then in verse 21, Acts 14.21, it says this, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Those are the, the Galatian churches, part of them strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, quote, we must, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul said, listen, it's, 
It's accounted on, on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Christ, but to suffer for his name. If you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. Paul asked the question, have you suffered so many things in vain? I mean, haven't you seen God? By the way, that word suffering doesn't just mean suffering. Actually, it means all kinds of experiences, including suffering. But he would look at the, the Galatians and say, listen, if you're walking with Christ, you, haven't you experienced God? And haven't you even experienced suffering at the hands of the world because of your walk with God? How could you now, after doing, seeing all these experiences and all the suffering in your life and watching the sufferings in my life, now go to works? By the way, have you, have you suffered for Christ? Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Or do you avoid it? Lord, I'll do this, this, and this because really nobody really gets upset and I'm not going to be identified and therefore I'm comfortable. But Lord, don't let me, I'm not going to go down that other path because then I'll be marked as a believer and things are going to happen in my life. And then finally, their supplier, verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you, that's the Father. Remember, we looked at John 15. Jesus said, if I go, I'll send the Spirit. Oh, excuse me. If I go, the Father will send him. Okay? So, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit, that's the Father, first person of the Trinity, to you, and works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you, how do you have the, by the way, that word miracles is power. It's the word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. It's really not referring specifically to just miracles. He's saying, listen, don't you have the power of God in your life? How did you get that? Did you get it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did, how did, how did the power of God come to your, your life? And, and, and that you can underline one word here. Therefore, he who supplies, that word is super abundantly supplies. It's the word supplies with a little prefix that means he has just, just poured it out. He has poured out the spirit in your life. He has poured out power in your life. God the Father is, is the supplier. Well, you say, well, no, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, but God the Father gave the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at all the... Come on, Galatians, think about all the, the blessings that you've had. You have the Spirit of God in your life. You sense His power, His direction. You sense the miracles. By the way, in that missionary journeys, there were signs and wonders, it says in Acts 14. So there were miracles. That was where the man from Lystra received strength in his feet. He was a cripple from his mother's womb and was able to stand and walk. And So they saw physical miracles, but it goes beyond just the miracle. I mean, he's talking about all the power that you see in your life. Did you get it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It reminds me of the passage in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3.19 says this, To know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge. You know, I always look at that and I, I think to myself, oh, and that's what he's saying. How can I really understand the love of God towards me? Isn't that a mind blower? That God loved you on this little speck of a, earth, a thing called earth? Right to you? God loves you? That's very hard. It's beyond comprehension. We can only grab a piece of it. It's like a little, like a pie, a little crumb of the pie. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that word fullness means that you would really understand His love and God's wisdom and God's power and God's omniscience and how that every part of your life is, is being uh, orchestrated through a loving Father. That's what Paul prayed to the Ephesians. He said that you would just have a better, bigger picture of God, that God would not be small, God would be big. God has so much for us, and that's really what that's exactly what Paul said in the book of Galatians, that you know, God is so big, He is the supplier, the superabundant supplier. Do we look at him like that? I'm reminded of a one of the stories that J. Wilbur Chapman, he was an old preacher back in the 1800s, I believe it was. But he would often tell this story about a man who got saved. But he would re this man related a story about his own personal life. This is what this man said. I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. 
For a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, do you have a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. I have found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it, this man said. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. I think that's what the Lord's saying here. I mean, Paul's saying in Ephesians, the fullness. I think that's what Paul was saying as far as with God in that verse 5. He is the provider, the superabundant supplier of not only the Holy Spirit, but of all the power, all the things. It's right at our disposal. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Colossians 2 says we are complete in him. But sometimes we go around as a beggar because we have forgotten our real father. And he draws us back and he says, listen, look at all the riches, all the blessings, all that I am and I can be to you. And that's really what Paul was saying to the Galatians. Listen, you're going after the crumbs of this world thinking that the law could do something. Look at all the blessings He questions them. Look at everything I give you because those four questions, actually five questions, hopefully will draw the Galatians back to Christ. Hey, I don't want to be bewitched. Yes, he's given me the the Holy Spirit. Yes, and it's it's not the law. It's the Spirit that gives me sanctification. Yes, I have suffered for Christ because he is worth it. Yes, I have a Father who has super abundantly supplied me with everything I need. They should just bring us right back and say, Lord, Lord, why would I ever think that the dead law can do anything in my life? Let's stand as we worship him. You are the refuge of my